Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Robin Steiner. Today, we'll be talking to Ksenia Chikayev about her much-anticipated new book, Gleaning for Communism, the Soviet Household in Theory and Practice. Ksenia is a senior lecturer in the Department of History at the Higher School of Economics University in St. Petersburg, Russia. She's published articles in, among many others, the American Historical Review, Anthropology and Humanism, Environmental Humanities, and the Bulletin of the Atomic Sciences. And Ksenia is a longtime friend who I've known since long before either of us became anthropologists. Ksenia, it's an absolute, an absolute delight to have known you for so many years and to get to see you produce such killer ethnographic work. Thank you for joining us. So uh, tell us how you came to write Gleaning for Communism. Well, actually, completely by accident. Um, uh, initially, I had this other project uh, about disposable, disposable things in in uh, the post-Soviet space. And I had this great idea, I thought, that um, people might physically notice the rise of disposable objects because in the indexical sense, in the sort of Piercean sense, they're mute. They don't, they don't amass marks of past use on their bodies. So, you know, you know, in a sense, you're stuck in repetition compulsion when you use the same plastic spoon. You use the spoon the same way, you throw it away, you use it again, you throw it away. Um, and so I had, this, I had this idea because I, in my sort of, travels through former Soviet spaces, I noticed that there was this folk philosophy of um, where people would say that things were warming or that somehow they were saturated with prayer, that people would say that they could sort of feel the marks of past use uh, in, in, infused into the bodies of these things. And so I thought, well, maybe what they're doing is maybe this is a folk philosophy and they're reacting to the sudden influx of disposable things which, you know, of course, coming from a materially poor sort of, um, or in, in consumerist sense, at least, materially poor sort of um, setting in, in, in Soviet socialism. And so I wrote this great dissertation project, and I got a grant for it from the Benegrin Foundation, and I was really excited to uh, prove it. And then when I got to Russia, I did a, a series of sort of blind taste tests where I asked people, you know, to instead of try, try to figure out what they're actually feeling, try uh, ask people to compare a a genuinely old thing and a thing that just looked old. And it turned out that it was totally bogus. It was just fetishism. They couldn't actually, they couldn't actually tell the difference. Um, there weren't any indexical marks they were picking up. So that project was just dead. And, um, and I, you know, was kind of stuck here with no project and with a great sense of guilt about what I would say to the Van Grand Foundation, whose money I was spending. Um, and so to somehow, you know, try to um, dig myself out of this hole, I started finding oral histories of uh, things that people had made at the plants in Soviet times and smuggled home. Um, so these these things were, uh, there's a little bit of work done on these things. Some people call them homers. Some people um, call them the fosk. There's a, a Danish uh, museum that, in Dan, Dan, Danish, I guess the word is the fosk. And so there's a big exhibit about this. Um, but these are things that were made by factory workers um, out of surplus industrial materials and then smuggled over the fences. So knives, uh, flasks, knitting needles, uh, even tombstones, kayaks, everything. Basically, if um, you, you name it, they made it. And everybody, for the most part, that had access to metal made these things. And so a lot of, a lot of people still, 20 years after the Soviet Union had collapsed, a lot of people still had these things around, and they had a lot of really interesting stories about them. So out of just kind of give myself a, a, something to do, I started putting together an archive, and I got a bunch of these photographs um, and I got a bunch of stories of, of things that people had made and everybody who's helped them ma- make them. And I recorded uh, a lot of kind of funny, heroic stories about how people helped each other get around these factory fences and about around these rules. And, um, you know, and these stories, they weren't, um, 
uh, they often described actions that were illegal, but they were always described in a way that was ethical and kind of funny and charming. So I didn't get a sense that people thought that they were doing anything wrong. Uh, and so I, I came back with that from the field and I wrote a dissertation about it. And then when I started actually trying to make my dissertation into a book, I kind of had to admit once again that I had gone up, uh, gone down the wrong, the wrong road because these things that I thought were Soviet, weren't about half of them weren't actually Soviet. And during my dissertation, I sort of tried to fudge the data a little bit. I mean, so I had some things from like 1989. I was like, okay, well, that's still officially Soviet. Even 1991, that's kind of borderline Soviet. But but then I had things from like 1998. And okay, that's it's really hard to claim that that's Soviet, right? Because the Soviet Union, of course, fell apart in 1991. So, um, so for a few years, I couldn't figure out what to do with that and how to write my book until I went down another sort of little rabbit hole. And I started reading a lot about the juridical history of socialist property, about Soviet civil law. And when I did that, I realized that actually what, my informants had been telling me when they, when I would ask them, you know, for stories of these self-made Soviet things, and they would show me all these things that were made at the plants any time from the 1960s to 1998. And um, and I realized that actually they weren't mistaken; they were actually right because when they called them Soviet, what they were referencing is this particular uh, customary use right, a particular socialist collectivism which was indispensable to the planned economy, and it was written into the law itself as um, an ultimate sort of good for which you should you should strive. Um, so that's sort of what the book is about. The book is about um, uh, this socialist customary use right that was implicit in the socialist property law, um, upon which the socialist household economy was founded. You draw on the work of uh, Timothy Mitchell, who points out that up through the 1920s, the economy as a concept, a sphere of life separate from the state and the household, didn't exist. As you explain in your book, the economy in the sense wasn't really a part of the Soviet intellectual tradition. So if Soviet planners didn't see themselves as managing an economy in the sense that we know today, what were they managing? Right. Well, so fascinatingly, I mean, not only was it not part of uh, the theoretical tradition of Soviet planning, it also wasn't part of um, the theoretical tradition of um, American economists, for example. Right. So that, that's that's Tim Mitchell's point is actually that this idea of the economy as we know it today, which is which is sort of a separate realm, which is neither the political realm of the state nor the private realm of the household, that's a quite, quite a recent invention. And he pins it to the 1930s, which is interesting because one of the things I claim in my book is that um, the emergence of uh, this idea of the economy as the market and the socialist version, the economy as the household, is totally in- intertwined. And one way of seeing the history, the long history of the 20th century, is is uh, that of a, uh, a long international angry conversation about what it means to live a collectivist modern life, about whether modern life could be collectivist. Um, and of course, this, theoretically, this conversation sort of roots deeper into the 19th century. It goes to, or even earlier, it goes to the question of modernity, about what happens to human beings when we stop living in uh, small societies where everybody basically knows everybody and nobody's a stranger. And if somebody comes in who you know the community hasn't seen, that person is instantly implicated into some sort of um, kinship relations. You know, somebody's friend, brother, whatever. Somebody's staying with somebody. Uh, what we have in a modern society is a stranger society, right? Where people live together as strangers, and so something must mediate the relationships between them. And so there's a question: is well, what sort of what sort of a 
society can this be and can it be collectivist? And on the neoliberal side, on the, the sort of this intellectual tradition that would become neoliberal, um, there's quite an angry uh, refusal of the fact that uh, that that a modern society can function without a market. So, so Ludwig von Mises in 1920 writes this really famous um, uh, text against against Soviet socialism, where he says, "Look, this will be fundamentally impossible if you don't have a market to um, to to mediate the relationships of all of the actors in the economy." to the amount of resources that you have, you'll have to plan everything by hand. This will be this is, could be possible only in a household, only in a small kind of, and he means like literally single family household with you know a father guiding it. Um, anything outside the small household model, it will lead to chaotic results, he says. Um, so interestingly, on the Soviet side, uh, this, particular, this idea of the household is, particular, is precisely what they're after. And... Uh, if you read Stalin's um, legal scholars' text, they're actually specific, they're, they're in, in, um, angrily writing against uh, attacks of people like Mises, who who are saying, "Look, you're totalitarian. You know, the only way you can make this work is if you crush the wills of all of your, you know, citizens and get them to do what, what you want them to do." Um, and what they say is actually no. Um, we have true democracy. It's you who have totalitarianism because you crush people by the iron law of the market. You know, the poor, poor people can't uh, get out and, and uh, succeed. Um, and what we have is actually in a, a truly democratic anti-liberal modernity that is based on the idea of the economy as a household. It's a, it's a managed economy. Um, and so in, in Russian, there's this term, хозяйство, which, which literally means household, but it can mean any sort of uh, substantive economy. So a substantive economy of all levels, um, up to the the nation, national economy, which is managed, and down to like a children's playroom. So you know you walk into a child's playroom; it's full of all his Legos and everything. And you might say, "Pick up your хозяйство," which means like you know, pick up all your junk. Right? Um, so grammatically, uh, the term хозяйство takes a subject position. It implies a хозяин who is the head of household and is therefore responsible for managing this. All this stuff, right? Um, and this, this is what uh, on the neoliberal side um, was seen to necessarily crush democratic freedoms, right? Because there will always be a person who is telling everybody else what to do. Right? On on the Soviet socialist side, um, it it was seen that the the market alternative was headless. And therefore, since nobody was in charge, couldn't actually lead anywhere. Right? So, uh, so Soviet socialism, um, as, uh, starting in 1932-1936 uh, with, with Stalin, uh, they create a, a, a system which they call the so- Soviet socialist household economy. And they are quite explicit about it being a household. It, 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 they define it against the headless, the headless market because they have somebody leading it, which is the party, and they have a place for which they're striving, which is communism. Now, um, what the way that uh, the system has typically been analyzed is uh, through this liberal totalitarian lens, right? So it's it, it, it's if you look at it sort of from the liberal tradition, well, this looks like a large factory, where you have a factory manager, right? You're managing everybody, and you know everybody everybody needs to obey the the rules, and then consequently all individual private freedoms are crushed when they when they disobey. Um, but the thing is, what I argue in my book is that actually it was a household. And households fundamentally differ from factories in the sense that um, it takes a different person. It takes a different ethical relation. 
in a factory, your ideal worker uh, comes to the factory, does his factory, you know, work from nine to five, or he clocks in, clocks out, right? He's not distracted. He's an automaton when he's on the job, right? And then he's off. Uh, but that's not the way we live in our households. The way we live in households, and ideally the way somebody lives in a household, is that um, a household is a collection of people who are ethically committed to each other. Right, so they're they're tied together with all these indefinite customary ties of entitlement and obligation and um, honor and pride and you know um, all of this stuff and the material base on which we build our household is shared. So we have personal use rights to the stuff, but it's not alienably ours. We can't take it as our private property and, for example, sell it. You know, so like you know, if you it actually makes a lot of sense if you think about the property relations that you have in your household. Um, you know, you can you can borrow your dad's car, and if it's an emergency, you can take it without asking him, and just explain later. Like, look, especially if it's an emergency concerning somebody in the household, like my brother broke his leg, I had to take your car. Like, that would be fine, right? But it would be weird if you took your dad's car and then sold it, and pocketed the money. That would not be okay, right? So, so this is the logic of socialist and personal property, which in in 1936 in the Stalin Constitution is officially written into. Um, Soviet socialist property law as sort of the guiding principle of this uh, illiberal democratic modern state. Uh, so uh, Stalin is very specific about this. And Stalin actually has a, a fairly leading role in creating this uh, property system, this, this household right, that he leads. Um, and he wants it defined as an anti-liberalism. So um, key crucial, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, critical uh, Soviet documents tack back to um, foundational liberal documents and tweak their main tenets, right? So the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen uh, uh, talks about the, the, the 13th article is, is that uh, citizens' property and what's implied as private property is, is sacred and um, can't be impinged on by the state unless the state pays the citizen back. And uh, Stalin takes this, this tenant and he tweaks it and he makes sacred socialist property. And then he gives personal use rights to this sacred socialist space. Um, so that's one. Uh, liberal constitutions um, are based on stability of, of private rights. And Stalin takes that and he makes those rights personal. Um, and, and throughout the history of the Soviet Union, they're constantly sort of going back to the liberal ideal, which is, of course, also evolving. And they're saying, no, no, we have the true democracy. Khrushchev says this, Brezhnev says this, Gorbachev says this, you know, Stalin, of course, said this. But the other thing is, on the liberal side, too, they are defining themselves against this totalitarian image for which they often tack to the Soviet Union. So these two systems, they sort of co-evolve like as a, as a molecule of DNA or something. And I think the, the place where we get to by the end, uh, where, you know, with, with Timothy Mitchell, we can agree that now we have this idea that the economy in, in the U.S. and American English, the way we, we see it, is typically something that is only a market economy that is neither the political realm of the state nor the private realm of the household. The fact that we have this definition has a lot to do with the history of the Soviet Union and with the fact that by sort of the late... Uh, 20th, early 21st centuries, uh, century, our idea of the economy became definitely split into either the household on one side or only the market on uh, the other, only the market or only the household, right? Uh, of course, in the initial in the initial Greek word, oikos, from which we get our term economy, they're, they're collapsed, they're related. And of course, no society could work without them being collapsed. 
we must do both. We must manage our lives as a household, and also we must have market relations, right? And so, uh, kind of a can maybe a, a larger sort of personal project for me that I came out of this book project with is um, how do we get to this place where we can't really think about the economy as something that is um, unified, and how do maybe how do we think ourselves out of this puzzle that we've gotten into? So, Cassini, one of the things that I found was so fascinating um, about your ethnography was your discussion of um, the anti-corruption industry. And it sort of seems to be connected to this kind of co-evolution of the um, of capitalism in, in the West and the Soviet system in the East. So um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. There is this explosion of anti-corruption discourses after the Soviet collapse. I mean, you know, it's just talked about a lot. Like we, it's it's institutionalized in in uh, organizations like Transparency International, but there's also just a lot of it. All of a sudden, in the '90s, um, the idiom of corruption gives people all over the world a way to talk about everything that is wrong with our societies, that is, you know, not properly modern, that is rotten to the core, that is, you know, all this everything, right? Um, and it wasn't there before. And there's a, a kind of a, a question as to why. Well, one of the things that corruption does is it, it takes over for the, um, the evil of totalitarianism, which was the anchoring evil of, of Cold War liberalism. Uh, and they do the same thing. Uh, both totalitarianism and corruption is a transgression of the pri- private-public divide. So with totalitarianism, uh, the state kind of takes over everything that should be private, in, in this, this image, liberal image of totalitarianism. And in corruption, um, the private seeps into the public. So, you know, in, in, in both cases, the, the divide isn't respected. Um, it's interesting, you know, people did talk about corruption before the end of the Cold War. But, for example, if you look at, like, the writings of um, Samuel Huntington, for him, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a good thing. He, he, I mean, it's really interesting. He, he writes in the 1960s in ways that would be completely impossible in the 2010s in the, from a kind of a moral standpoint. Like, I don't think his editor would, would allow that, right? He says that um, uh, he also defines corruption as the use, the misuse of public resources for private ends. And he says that in uh, countries or in nations, I think he says, that are, uh, that are on the road to modernity, they might find that a bit of corruption is a good lubricant. <laughs> you know, in A good lubricant in breaking the traditional sort of realms, right? Now, that's impossible. Now, you can't say that. And I think that one of the things that, 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 that happens is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the evil of totalitarianism is gone. At least I think it's maybe it's coming back now, but it, it was gone for a while. And so a new, a new evil needs to manifest to have, uh, to give the liberal liberal ideology is something to define itself against. And so that becomes corruption. Um, so interestingly, when, when I got to my sort of, when I got to my second, my, when I got to my real project, when my first project about the disposable things failed and I started my, my new project about collecting the, all, all the self-made things and everything, um, I found myself being involved in a lot of just kind of everyday discussions about, um, you know, the way people do things the way people did things in the Soviet Union, the way people still do things in Russia today. And a lot of these had to do with using personal relations to get things done. Personal, using personal relations to get around the state's laws to help people out of a difficult situation. Um, but even though people endlessly talked about corruption and complained about it, these relations were not corruption. They were seen as an ethical good. And indeed, even by the sort of official definition of corruption of misusing uh, public resources for private aims, 
they weren't really that. I mean, these weren't um, these weren't relations that sold off like hospitals to buy a private yacht. These were relations, for example. So this happened to a friend of mine. You know, she she had to move into a um, a house in the rural outskirts of St. Petersburg to take care of her old grandmother after her mother died. And when she moved in, she saw that the uh, the house's electricity had been uh, jerry rigged. So her mother had paid somebody to set up to basically uh, uh, illegally hack into the um, the state's uh, electrical system. And this was unsafe. Everything was, you know, sparking and everything. Um, but it, actually, if officially, officially rewiring the whole house was prohibitively expensive, but she needed it rewired because she couldn't take care of her grandmother with the, the puny little two-watt um, official line that she had going to the house. So she went to the electrical company. She got an appointment to see the director. And she said, look, here, let me show you two, two bills, right? These are the ones my mom paid. These are the ones that I paid. You notice that mine are for 10 times more. Why do you think that is? Well, I'll tell you why that is. It's because she was stealing electricity from your company. And I don't want to do that because I don't want my house to burn down. But now you tell me what I can do because I've got a war veteran to take care of and I can't do it on this puny electrical line. Either I, I you know, if the, if the kettle is on, nothing else can be. And if anything else is on, then the breaker is just cut out. So help me out. And so he thinks about it. He says, look, here's what we're going to do. Um, your mother died recently, right? And she says, yes. And he says, well, um, I'm going to send some guys to your house. They're going to do an official hookup. And then I'm going to send an inspector. And the inspector is going to ask where the documents are. And you're going to say, I don't know. My mom just died. I don't know where the documents are. I don't know what she did with them. And, you know, and this was the story of how the house got the official electric line. And so everybody wins in a sense. Like she, she, you know, I mean, she didn't pay him. I think she, you know, wrote him a, a nice thank you letter and, you know, gave him presents and stuff. But presents in this sense, it's not corruption. It's like when you give presents in this relationship, you do it because you really want to thank somebody. I mean, I, I do it too. Like it's, it's, it feels good to give presents, right? It's not like, um, it's not a calculated material exchange. It's a way of, of, of thinking, you know. Um, so I, I was hearing a lot about these sort of relationships. And one thing I noticed is that they were not corruption. And when I went with those relationships in mind back to the Soviet past, that those are the kinds of relationships that I saw in all of the stories that people talked about as Soviet, these collectivist sort of relationships. And I realized that actually, well, this is what kept the Soviet economy together. Because in a sense, Mises, who said the Soviet economy was impossible, because you know, right, because it would never work, you'd have to plan everything, and it would be you know, impossible to do. He was right. Actually, if the, if the planned economy had followed the plan, it would never have gotten off the ground. Uh, even if you, in, you know, this, this is very obvious if you start, if you read, for example, oral histories collected with people who lived in Stalin's times, um, they're cut through with two, two lines. One is genuine fear of brutal policing, brutal and unpredictable. And the second is the ethic of what people call good relations. Right? Um, uh, people help each other. So they, they say like people who drink vodka together are good friends. And so in their working relations, they're more lenient. They say, well, sometimes workers would come and beg me for bread, and I would give it to them, and I'd write it off as waste, which in Russian is brak. Right? So all of these kind of human stories. These stories show up. Harvard has a really great archive of oral histories collected with um, uh, people who escaped the Soviet Union during and after World War II. And there's, there's hundreds of interviews, and almost all the interviews come back to this theme of people helping each other out. And indeed, without this, the economy would never have gotten off the ground. They would have just stalled. So the thing is, when people... 
um, when people, scholars, look at these sort of relationships through a liberal prism, in the sort of they follow Mises and they sort of see the Soviet household economy as a as a factory, right? Um, they see this either as they see this this as a, a kind of a lingering of market relations. So they they'll call this barter, or they'll say, well, this is the second economy. So the, the the planned economy didn't work without kind of a lingering market where people sort of use market relations to re remanage, resort out the materials, redistribute them, which is one way of seeing it. And if you look at it that way, then it looks corrupt. But if you talk to the people who themselves actually participated in these exchanges, then, then you notice that actually when they talk about the exchanges that they themselves participated in or that they benefited from, they'll say, well, you know, I, the guy needed help. I helped him out. So they go to ethics. They go to this socialist collectivist custom. And so this is the really interesting thing that I, I noticed in in my interviews when I, when I finally... Um, admitted to myself that a lot of the objects that I collected were not actually Soviet. A lot of them had been made after 1991. Um, is, is that people had a lot to say about the Soviet Union, and they had a lot to say about Perestroika. Perestroika for them was an era of um, social breakdown, of total theft. It was a, an era where the material base of the social itself was stolen away, so people would say, I got a lot of stories about how everything has been stolen, everything has been sold. Um, and Soviet times, Soviet times, uh, kind of in quotation marks, when people talked about them, when people talk, talked about how they made these objects and smuggled them out, it was a positive thing. It was, you know, times were tough, rules were stupid, party bosses um, were you know, unjustly privileged. But, you know, we helped each other out. We all worked together, we helped each other out. Um, what's interesting is that I noticed that sometimes... In one narrative, actually, these two factually, um, uh, um, sorry, um, the, these two different historical realms, Perestroika is supposed to follow Soviet times, right? These two, uh, these, sometimes they could overlap. So, so they could, people could be describing relations, exchanges that happened in 1998. So neither Perestroika nor Soviet. And if they themselves had a stake in the relationship, then they would say this was an example of people helping each other out in Soviet times. And if they didn't, or if they had a negative stake in it, then they would say, well, this is how everything was stolen in Perestroika. But actually, the relationship is the same. What's different is the moral viewpoint on it. On one hand, it's corruption. On the other hand, it's helping each other out. Wow. So the um, in, in this kind of context, what are what's what's the term Soviet and perestroika kind of referring to? Oh, so so these are two moral economy viewpoints on the same sort of informal transaction, uh, which of, of which there really was a lot in uh, after the Soviet collapse, right? Because it's a household economy, a substantive economy had broken down, and a market economy was starting, and so there was a lot of kind of free for all grabbing of materials. Right, so the the property rights were not yet completely uh, staked, and so in this sort of staking of property, everybody from factory workers who stole bits of metal over the fence to factory owners who stole factories to future oligarchs who stole, you know, natural natural resources or appropriated them or got them, however you want to phrase it, a lot of this stuff was going on and people's ethical relationship to it depended on how they themselves related to the exchange. What's interesting, though, is when, when I would ask them, well, you know, tell me about the, the stuff that you made um, at the plants in Soviet times, Soviet um, I would get stories from the 1960s 
through 1998, and people did not make uh, a rhetorical distinction between them. So they saw this relation as a the same kind of relationship, and in, in a sense, indeed, indeed, it was. This was this was a relation of people collectively helping each other out around the state's illogical regulations and rules. What's interesting, though, is when I went to uh, Soviet civil law, I, I saw that actually, well, this was an exchange that was actually written into the law itself. It was also supported by uh, Soviet, you know, media, films, uh, songs, newspaper articles, you know, all sort of all the trappings of cultural history and all the way back to Stalin's time. So one, one of my favorite examples is um, this this film from 1936. So 1936 is a crucial year. That's the year that the Stalin, Stalin constitution is inaugurated. And there's this kind of big uh, mailstorm of propaganda materials that come out. Film, songs, you know, kind of in support of Stalin's democracy, which he says, of course, is the true democracy. And one of these films is a film, is a comedy about forced labor. Um, it's it's comes out in 1936 and it's called Convicts. Uh, it's set in the notorious uh, Belt Belt Log, uh, the Gulag that built the White Sea Channel, which which is the first uh, building site on which the state admitted to using forced labor. Uh, they, they say, well, we've used forced labor in the past. We're doing it now. We're going to continue to do it because it helps the prisoners. It helps us. It's great. What's the problem? Right. And in, in this, in this, um, comedy, there's two types of actors, two kind of main types of actors, right? There's the, the former aristocrats, the declassed aristocrats that are sent there for re-education. And then there's the hardened criminal convicts. And of course the, the peasants that actually made up most of Stalin's gulags are mostly absent from the picture. There's some kind of gray on uh, gray mass, but no characters amongst them. So um, the in the beginning of the film, neither the aristocrats nor the uh, nor the hardened cons want to work, and that sets up the narrative drama. But then they both kind of come around and into the, the great uh, um, the glory of socialist construction. But there's a romantic line that ties this film together, and that's um, there's this, this uh, criminal. Uh, uh, this authoritative criminal named Cap- Captain Kostya, who courts a woman from the uh, former uh, aristoc- aristocratic classes, and um, you know he's serin- he, the the camp the police boss gives him a button accordion for his good work, and he's serenading Margarita Ivanovna on this button accordion when it breaks down because of its crappy uh, Soviet workmanship. And she invites him to come see her in the office where she works for some glue. She said, I'll give you some glue to fix it with. But in the meantime, um, a former worker tells her that actually Kostya had been a thief in the free world and not a pilot. And so when he comes, she doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And she says, look, um, you know, she basically gives him the law. She says, we, I can't just be giving out glue. It's socialist property. Like, you know, we need it for our own needs. This is like, well, I can't, I can't just give it to you. And um, he flies into a rage. Uh, he storms off. He comes back. He threatens to kill the man that told her about his shady past. And then when armed guards run in to apprehend him, he runs straight to the camp bosses, to the, the police boss, to his office. And he says, look, this is what happened. And so the police boss um, issues the following orders. He says, um, uh, release Kostya from punishment, give him back his accordion, give him some glue. Um and sentenced Margarita Ivanovna to 15 days administrative arrest. And back at the work site, the guys all vote unanimously to forgive Kostya for skipping out on work to seek vengeance because they say we've got to treat our com- comrade humanely. So this is and this is a film released um, kind of in celebration of the Stalinist constitution. So this relationship to socialist property is is literally um, sort of propagated as as the ethical way of treating 
socialist property if you know if you if you're a member of the household. And of course, it's also written into the, the text of Soviet legal scholars as they talk about how their version of um, modernity differs from the liberal version and why personal property is different from private property. So could you tell us a little more about that, about the um, evolution of uh, Soviet property law? Yeah, well, um, right. Uh, you know, the, the, the part of Soviet law in general that has typically most interested Western scholars um, has been early Soviet pre-Stalinist. That's when you get Pashukhanis, uh, Stuchka, and people like that. So and that's that's um, kind of a more philosophically interesting, I mean, typically said to be philosophically interesting, radical breaking with the liberal tradition where um, they say, look, um, you know, law and morality are both superstructures which are oppressive and which must wither away when we get to true communism. So insofar as we have civil law, we only have it as a temporary um, kind of crutch until we get there. And so um, private property was actually um, part of the early Soviet civil codexes of 1922 and 26. Uh, And so it was given to everybody. Everybody in the Soviet Union had private property, but they had it only as a temporary vestige. So it was it was noted as a as a property uh, relation that was destined for extinction, and if juridically if there were any conflicts between private property and socialist property, socialist property was legally supposed to prevail. So you know, so really, this is a process of dispossession. You know, and at, at, the, at the same time, a uh, historically a major process of dispossession, of course, is happening. Right, the state nationalizes um, businesses and resources, and, and, and banks and stuff. Um, it, it also um, collectivizes peasants. It, it you know pushes people into gulags. It, it uh, forces stages a whole system of forced resettlements, um, forced labor camps, and all this stuff. Um, and um, by 1932, uh, most people had been dispossessed of most things, right? And a draconian new anti-gleaning law is issued. And this is a law that Stalin personally uh, demands be, be issued. Um, and he literally says, look, um, capitalism would never have persevered over feudalism had it not made uh, private property sacred and had not... Um, defended it with all this might. And of course, there he's referencing the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen of uh, 1789. And he says, so we've got to do the same thing. And uh, so we've got to make socialist property sacred. And this is a law uh, which punished any and all theft of this collectivized socialist property with death or with 10 years in the camps. So literally, this is, of course, a time of mass famine. So literally, a peasant who gleans like a handful of grain in a time of famine to feed his starving family uh, can be executed. That, right? um, and within within four years, by 1936, um, a on this on this basis of socialist property. So, by, by the way, sorry, I forgot to say this. The this this 1932 law is is especially interesting because it's the first time the socialist property is named in law, in, in Soviet law, and it's already named sacred. So it, it appears in law. It appears as, as as the sacred basis of the Soviet order, um, and then four years later. It, basically, the same language is copied into the Stalinist Constitution, and the, uh, the Stalinist Constitution names Soviet socialist property the sacred basis of the Soviet order. But it adds something else; it gives everybody private use rights 
to the sacred base. And so from then on, basically, you've got a completely different legal system with which uh, most kind of Western legal scholars, legal historians have not really known what to do with it because it doesn't really make much sense. I mean, it seems like a bad version of liberalism. It seems like a liberalism without, with kind of imperfect private rights. Uh, but what I do, because I'm an anthropologist, what I do is I actually looked at it through a different optic. I looked at it through the prism of custom. And, and I said, well, actually, if, if you look at it through custom, it actually totally makes sense. And that what the Stalinist Soviet legal scholars did was they kind of described the logic by which the system did work. It's, it was a planned economy that didn't work by the rules. It worked only by personal use rights that people staked to socialist property. And because people went out of their way to act as the khazyayeva, so the household managers, of the little households they managed. The socialist household was a large household, but it was a large household made up of lots of little different smaller households, like a fractal, right? And every household was managed by a household head, a khazyayan, who was asked by the state and by his collective and by himself ethically to take personal responsibility to ensure the household's flourishing. So that meant going out of his way or her way to get the stuff that, you know, the household needed. So that involved breaking the law. <laughs> and so in this, in this weird way, it's, it's a legal system written with the breaking of the law already encapsulated in it. And if you look at legal cases of, um, of people who come up for economic crimes, of course, people did, of course, like it's, it's, not, it's not that breaking the law was allowed. A lot of people, a lot of people, you know, um, served prison time and were executed for this. Um, but high-level managers sometimes bring this up in their defense. They say, well, look, I was just acting as a manager. Right? This is what I had to do. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. But the very fact that they can, they have this legal defense to draw on um, in a way shows how central it was to, to the whole system. Oh, great. Um, so for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, what is gleaning and how, how is it actually related to the functioning of these Soviet enterprises? Right. Well, so gleaning is, um, it, it, it is an agricultural term. Um, it is written in the Bible. Uh, we see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy as a uh, demand from God. God says, you know, you shall not, um, gather your field to the edges or go back for the gleanings. You shall leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Um, the gleaning, gleaning is the act of picking up after the main harvest has been reaped. So those, you know, if you reap by hand, you have a lot of waste. And those stray sort of grains that fall on the field, those in sort of the Old Testament tradition should have been left for um, the gleaners. Typically, gleaning was a, a difficult agricultural task um, left for them sort of the less fortunate of society. Um, but what's interesting in, in, the socialist, in the socialist household is, of course, you know, it's, it's one, it's a household, but it's, it's a household made up of lots of little households. And it runs on remainders. And what the gleaning allows me to do, the, the concept of gleaning, for which I'm actually extremely grateful to Amiel Bizet because she, uh, we've been working together on this gleaning project. And she, it was her idea. It was her idea to think about gleaning as a uh, analytical term, as a term with analytical um, traction for anthropology. Uh, and what that allows you to do is, is think about a, uh, an economy of, of solids and remainders. So if you have a market economy, we think in metaphors of liquid flow and circulation. I think the, the reason that we do that is because value flows. So value can flow through the bodies of use value, right? So you buy one thing, sell another thing, you thereby maintain your value. The value flows from one object to another. 
And so we have circulation. But if you have a use value economy, like a household economy, you just have stuff. You don't have flowing value. So you have a you have something that you use in context, like you you know um, this is very, this is this is very interesting if you look at old ethnographies like Malinowski of how people actually did stuff in non market times, right, and places. So um, the way the Malinowski describes people building a canoe in the Shropian Islands in the 1920s, right, of course they don't have they don't have meters and yards, they don't have abstract measure, measurements. Um, they also don't have like diagrams by which to build the canoe. They go into the forest, they get a log. It looks pretty good to them. They start working with it and then they get other logs and they sort of, you know, bring the other logs up to that log and they see how well it fits and they cut off what doesn't fit. So they make, they measure the log in context to the log that they already have. Right. And so what doesn't, what gets lopped off, that's the remainder. And in a way, the remainder is free for all. I mean, you don't need it. So you might as well let somebody else use it. So that's sort of that's sort of the logic of non-market economies. That, that's sort of one of the logics that non-market economies allows you to think with is this remainder that isn't automatically and instantly picked up back into circuits of flowing, circulating value, right? And of course, so the socialist household economy, of course, it's one of these use value economies, um, but it's it's special in that it's built on one big base of sacred socialist property, which everybody uses. So Soviet managers were expected to be at once both gleaners and owners. They were on one hand um, supposed to, with this, and this is interesting if you read, for example, uh, Joseph Berliner, he's got this book from I believe 1953. It's one of the earliest sort of really good studies of um, Soviet management. And you know he, he has a lot of examples of this based with interviews of uh, so Stalin era Soviet managers who had defected to the US. Um, so, you know, one of the things he says is that, like the the um, good manager was expected uh, was expected to be um, proactive. I think he used a different word, but he means something else. A uh, good manager was, was expected to be proactive about getting his resources. The manager who just put in his requirements and then sat back was said to be lazy and therefore not a good manager because, you know, you get a plan by which you're supposed to get your resources, but you might not actually get the resources that you need. To actually get that plan filled, you need to rely on your personal ties. You need to call people and make sure that you, you know, you, you get your snapgenza. Um, it's a it's a word that means um, procurement officers. So you get your procurement officers to go to those distribution, to go to those plants that give that's supposed to give you the materials and talk to them, make sure you actually get the materials you need. Um, and so on in in the system, of course, and of course, there's no market price, right? So in, in in the system, to be a successful manager, what you should do is, on one hand, you should try to raise the requested inputs. So you ask for more stuff than you need, because you hope to at least get the stuff that you do need. And if you have extras, that's cool. You can leave them in the warehouse. But then, if you have those extras, what do you do with them? Well. You know, you don't need them. So you, you, first of all, you might need them to cover your shortages that come up later. But if you don't need them, then you are encouraged to give them to other, informally, other managers to cover their shortages. And then, of course, with those managers, you have a personal relation of informal friendly debt. Sometimes it's formal. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's various levels of formality. But if, if we are in the sort of the ethical customary use stance, then we'll say it's informal friendly debt. And that person will help you out in the future. So you, on one hand, glean from the plan by asking for more than you need and having a little bit of remainder to set aside in the warehouse. And on the other hand, you are a, are a good field owner who lets other people glean his remainders. 
Um, it, it's actually, it's a lot like, um, like the way academics write grants. You know, you're always supposed to try to max the budget because they might give you more less. And if they give you more, that's cool. <laughs> you just take the money and you do something good with it. The important thing is just not to pocket it. Like if you, if you take that extra money and you put it in your private bank account, well, then you're kind of a schmuck. But if you take it and you have extra money left over and so you use it to, you know, do give more presence to your people in the field or, you know, to do something good with it, support a grad student, whatever, then that's generally considered to be a good thing. Awesome. So uh, one of the themes um, that I really love in your work is the way that you engage with social memory. Um, so Stalin, of course, is one of the most well-known figures in the Soviet Union. And yet, as you discovered, within a few years of his death, he'd been almost completely erased from Soviet history books. So what happened and uh, why had that history been erased? Yeah, this this is so interesting. If you um, if you look at Google Ngram, I've, I've recently got, gotten into Google Ngram as a kind of, not as a research tool, but kind of just as a fun uh, kind of partially a teaching tool, but also partially just kind of a a fun tool to verify historical facts against. But if you look at Google Ngram in Russian and you type in Stalin, you will notice that he is mostly gone from 1956 until 1987. It's it's amazing. It's like, you know, it goes up, 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 and then it goes goes straight down and then flatlines. And the reason for that is that Khrushchev demanded that Stalin's name be basically erased from public discourse, public mention, in 1956, in the um, in his famous speech against Stalin's personality cult. What's interesting, though, is that uh, this isn't something that people talk about today. Um, the sort of the common sense history that I kind of grew up with, and I think that a lot of people in the U.S. have, is that um, you know Stalin was a, a big deal, and then Gorbachev kind of exposed the crimes of Stalin, and everybody was shocked. Um, and in fact, it was it was shocking to me how how I myself didn't think about the fact that for thirty years nobody talked about Stalin, which is you know a huge time not to talk about this like major you know leader of of um, major political leader of the Soviet Union. The way I, I came to personally learn about it is I, I was traveling through uh, Georgia with a friend of mine to see a friend, a Georgian friend who lives there. And we were traveling with a dog and so we couldn't fly. And we had to go through Sochi and which is kind of like horrendous Russian town, (laughs) horrendous Russian resort town with nothing to do, literally nothing. And uh, we were stuck there waiting for a train, rented a shack from an old lady, like literally shack, like full of, you know, all sort of kind of junk that people have in their attics. And spending days in that shack with nothing to do, there was a stack of Soviet textbooks, and so I, I started reading them. And I noticed that in the 1972 textbook, there's no mention of Stalin. I mean, if you believe the high school history textbook of 1972, nobody called Stalin ever did anything worth knowing about, which is kind of surprising. So, you know, when I, I got back um, got, got back to the U.S. to the libraries, um, it was pretty easy to discover when exactly Stalin went missing in 19. 19- 56, the 1955, the textbooks still talk, you know, about Stalin, about his death and how his death was a great tragedy to the Soviet people that made the Soviet people gang up even tighter again uh, around the, 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 the party and its leading role. But uh, by 1957, the textbooks, the high school textbook mentioned Stalin twice. Once as a author of a book uh, about the foundations of Leninism and um, once as um, among the many people who supported Lenin's decision to begin the revolution in October. Um, it, it, he's just gone, right? Um, so what's, I think the, the reason that we have this historiography and the reason that it's important is that when 
Gorbachev in 1987 um, kind of brought Stalin's name back into public mention. It was a sensation. And he brought him back into public mention as uh, the ultimate evil that had dragged Soviet society into this kind of dismal state of stagnation, he called it, and and everything. And his reading of history was quite similar to Khrushchev's. In both of them, um, they actually, you know, they they thought that, well, they, they said that uh, revolutionary violence was good. You know, Lenin's Red Terror was good. Violence was good to break the class enemies um, that kind of hindered construction of socialism. But then it should have been stopped once socialism had been built. So they mean post-1936. So after 1936, um, there was still violence. Stalin, there was still violence because Stalin was obsessed with his personality cult. And so he couldn't kind of roll back the violence. Um, And because of that, you know, things became stagnant and... Therefore, you know, so, so the only difference between them is that Khrushchev removed Stalin's name from public mention and Gorbachev brought them back. Actually, and both of these readings, they're firmly based in Lenin's theories of state and revolution, where the, the working class first needs to break violently the capitals, the bourgeois state, and then build its own socialist kind of state in a bloodless way. Um, the problem is, though, if that's your reading of history, then Stalinism appears to be a kind of a, a useless vestige on socialism rather than the driving role of building Soviet socialism. So you, if, you, if that's your reading of history, you uh, you make uh, Stalinist violence uh, again about a personal sort of unfreedom that people suffer. It becomes an emotional thing. It becomes a, um, a question of fear. You know, people don't work as hard because they're afraid and all of this stuff, which might be true, but it brackets the most important thing about Stalinism, which was property, right? So, I mean, and, and you know, uh, with one of the reason that Stalin is so foundational in, in, in Soviet history is that he built a new system of property on which he then built the socialist household, socialist household economy, right? And this is a major process of dispossession by which, you know, it, it wasn't just that people were, you know, uh, unfree and, uh, uh, repressed for political reasons, people also were dispossessed of their property, of their lives, of their free time, of their labor, and they were dispossessed uh, for the sake of building a common socialist field, to which then everybody else was given personal use rights. And so with this history bracketed, uh, the version of destalinization that Gorbachev proposes actually has nothing to do with property law. And, and so then the economic reforms that Gorbachev puts through um, kind of, well, they, they dissolved the Soviet household economy completely by accident. They didn't mean to do it. They just weren't thinking about property because they had this other version of history, which specifically had nothing to do with property. And so in their attempt to sort of liberate people into being uh, more ethical and, you know, liberate them from the, the, the unfreedom that Stalin had pushed down upon them, um, they accidentally gave away the sacred base of socialist property upon which the socialist household was founded. So um, I think one of the most um, interesting contributions of your book um, is that you lay out a new theory about why the Soviet Union collapsed. You point out that perestroika as a set of economic reforms is largely misunderstood. So I have uh, two questions about this. Um, how First, how and why were the perestroika, have the perestroika reforms been misunderstood? And second, as you ask yourself in your final chapter, what were the economic reforms of perestroika? Yeah, Um Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a really surprising riddle of um, 
kind of popular historiography that uh, so little is said about the economic reforms of perestroika because of course people talk about perestroika endlessly or they did when I was doing my fieldwork. Uh, people on the ground talked about perestroika as a time of great dispossession. Um, perestroika was sort of, sort of like a, a major kind of keyword of um, Soviet history is what ended it. Um, but people tend to see the perestroika reforms as either ideological ones or, you know, freedom of the press, glasnost, freedom to criticize Stalinism, all this stuff. Um, whereas, you know, kind of political reforms of the um, um, institutions of, 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 of governance um, and not as economic. And economic historians, uh, typically, again, from this like a liberal position that sees the Soviet Union kind of as a, as a household economy, um, haven't been able to do much with them either because from a market economy, they make no sense. Uh, these were reforms that um, uh, encouraged enterprises to perform uh, horizontal trade with their kind of uh, um, with with all their production in excess of the state plan. So they had a minimal state plan they had to fulfill, and with that, with the the other the remaining stuff, they had to find their own trade trading partners. But they had no free market prices, and so in this situation, um, you know, you are best served by finding uh, somebody who can get you all the informal stuff in your in that in that sort of the household cleaning kind of cleaning kind of way uh, because of course it doesn't matter to me whether I trade with you know Europe and say say for example I have a plant that makes like um, screws right everybody needs my screws and you make bicycles and uh, my friend Tom makes locomotives so you both need my screws but it makes much more sense sense for me to trade with you because you you're both going to pay me the same amount, but you will also give me some bicycles that I can then distribute to my workers or trade further on to get other stuff for my workers, for my collective, um, whereas Tom can only get me a locomotive, which I don't really need because <laughs> I can't do much with a locomotive. And so um, within, a, within several years, the, the planned economy had stalled and it had broken up into these kind of large fiefdoms of suzerainties of kind of large kind of barter monopolies. So from from a market economy viewpoint, it's like, well, of course, this isn't going to make any sense. And so people often see this as, well, Gorbachev tried to put through market reforms, but he was stopped. Um, there was infighting. You know, they wanted they wanted the market, but they were afraid to fully go market. You know, and so kind of kind of they they're often seen as like half baked and indecisive market reforms. But they actually worked. Um, actually, the in by by nineteen ninety, I should say that um, Gorbachev and his economic advisors and Soviet economists are very much fighting amongst themselves about what should have been done, what was done, what should now be done, market, non-market, all this stuff. But by 1985-86, when they're planning these reforms, they're all completely in agreement. And their their theories are coherent to the laws that they put through, the laws sort of institute what the theories say they're going to do, and the theories flesh out what the political speeches said they wanted to do. So this one big coherent reform project, and it's coherent with the logic of running a socialist household. Um, what they want is to give people more freedom to be good hazyaiva, to to be good household leaders. You know, so uh, 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 and and they frame this about a, a year or two later. They frame this as a, an anti-Stalinist move. And I think the reason that it was so compelling to people is that by you know by 1986, 85, um, all these incessant rules that really ground on people. They were really obnoxious. You know, you. 
they really it really felt like all these stupid laws rules um censorship procedures all this bureaucracy was really getting in the way of good people doing good things and of course the stalinist fear wasn't there anymore really which isn't to say that people didn't go to jail they did but um but if you look at oral histories from stalinist times um there people are really terrified and that terror is not really there in the late Soviet stories. Um, they're mostly frustrated and, you know, kind of irritated. Um, and there's a name for this irritation. There's a name for all these, these stupid rules that get in everybody's way. It's a name that's sort of unsaid, but it's felt. And it's sort of assumed. There's this one pejoratively capitalized Khazian that just gets in everybody's way. His lingering ghost that just won't go away and just won't let people get on with their lives and be the good socialists that they can be managing their socialist property as they should. And of course, that's Stalin, whose name can't be mentioned. Uh, by the way, it's really interesting if you uh, if you look at the way that the political language shifts in late Soviet times. There's this late Soviet political speech is often has an often noted verbosity. Yurchak writes a little bit about this, but so do Gorbachev's reformers, you know, but they just, they can't like, it feels like they just can't get to the point. There's just all these clauses and subclauses, and especially when they have to mention something about Stalin, because of course they can't say Stalin, but they sometimes need to talk about him because he's a major political leader. And so in these history books, if you read Soviet history books around places where they should say something about the cult of Stalin's personality or about Stalin himself, you get these, these huge sentences that go on for like half a page which is a totally different discourse than Stalinist political discourse. Stalinist discourse is hysterical, uh, short, screaming, kind of very ideological sentences, very to the point and terrifying. Um, totally different by the time you get to late Soviet period. And so by by tying um, Stalin in this in this kind of historical this historical image of Stalin as something that was vaguely oppressive and you know ground down on people like a bureaucratic Moloch that got into the very sacred eye of our personalities, as some of um, Gorbachev's uh, publicists wrote, wrote about this. Um, and just kind of all these incessant rules and, and things that got in everybody's way. Um, the idea was, well, we just need to lessen the rules. We need to finally say what was wrong with Stalin, you know, finish the work of... Uh, uh, De-Stalinization, which wasn't started, which couldn't f- be finished under Khrushchev because, of course, Brezhnev came in and sort of put it into everything. Um, and we just need to, like, lessen the rules and let people act as good socialist Khazayeva. The other part of this is that, you know, in the beginning of our conversation, I said that the liberal version of democratic modernity and the socialist version uh, developed together over the Soviet period, kind of like a DNA kind of band. So by the 1980s, the idea that markets... Um, generate effective solutions was a kind of an international common sense. And that's the common sense that Gorbachev and his reformers draw on. They want to bring some market in to allow socialist house socialist managers to be good kind of hazyaeva. Literally they say we need to institute the feeling, we need to um, strengthen the feeling of being a Hazayan in everybody. Of course being Hazayan without actually without actually owning pro- property in the liberal sense with possession. So you you need to feel like a Khazayan of the socialist property you manage, right? Um, so you can see how this would go totally sour, <laughs> and it did. <laughs> and and this socialist household was broken up by, by really by by 1990. It had mostly stalled, 
And interestingly, both kind of in popular memory and in uh, academic historiography, it's often said that, well, you know, there wasn't enough juridical rigor in these reforms, and so people could steal things. And so basically everybody stole socialist property that was suddenly available. And that's, you know, definitely partially true. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of theft. But the other reason it stalled is that people were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were being ethical collectivists. They were told, literally in the laws, they were told that enterprise directors need to watch out for their work collectives. And they need to provide their work collectives with substantive goods, with, um, you know, summer houses, with um, children's, you know, summer camps, with medical assistance, with all this stuff. So they were supposed to um, be good to their collectives as members of their household. And to do that, they had to trade for bicycles <laughs> instead of for locomotives. <laughs> um, and so everything everything kind of um, fell apart at that point. So I just think one of my points is that the, the Soviet Union and the Soviet socialist household economy and socialist property was personalized before it was privatized. Because when the privatization reforms had set in, when they were officially implemented, um, there was no longer socialist property to speak of. And actually, actual property relations, lived property relations, were already organized into along the lines of these suzerainties or these, um, you know, barter conglomerates, basically, um, brought together by powerful enterprises, by uh, regional governors, you know, sort of by, you know, basically like large, uh, way called it merchant capitalism. But it was a, an interesting sort of... Yeah, a, a monopoly sort of situation through, through which then privatization went. And then those relationships were sort of solidified as private relationships. And that went all the way through to the late 1990s. And that's why the, during those times, a, a lot of those relationships that I recorded in my book, people called them Soviet, because actually the logic was still very Soviet, even though um, the time was not. Oh, okay. Great. So... Um... What what role does the memory of the Soviet Union um, play in Russia today, and more specifically, Russia's current conflict in the Ukraine? Oh yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good question. Um, I, I you know I think it's not. I think in a way it's not just Russia. I think it's bigger than Russia. I think there is this memory of Fordism that plays a really important role in contemporary politics. I mean, I think I think Trump also rose on a sort of image of Fordism would make America great again and stuff. Um, I think it's kind of similar in Russia. I think there's an, an image of the Soviet Union as a time when things worked, you know. And of course, by um, by the time that the people that I talked to, by the time that they remember, the horrible dispossession of Stalinism was long past. They remember that maybe as, you know, as hearsay or as past memory, that's not something they themselves lived through. You know, for, for the most part. Um, so what they, a lot of them, especially the factory workers, what a lot of them remember from Soviet times is a sort of um, kind of a, a collectivist um, kind of present in which, uh, you know, people helped each other out and the laws were stupid, but we all worked together. And it's not like now when everything can only be done for money and they came and they stole everything. And there's a sort of a big... Um, 
distinction between sort of the goods uh, Soviet past, which which has been it's become better and better the further and further they've gotten from it. <laughs> you know, I think a, a lot of what the Soviet past right now is for for people is is kind of solidified by Soviet film, which of course only showed the positive and friendly side of Soviet socialism. But interestingly. Uh, it also showed, like st- starting from Stalinist times, but especially after Khrushchev's reforms, it also showed um, a, lot of, a lot of these informal transactions, which were seen to be kind of funny, but kind of the way things were done, not a big deal, kind of a kind of as a moral good, you know. So, so I think a, a lot of sort of the positivist feelings about the Soviet Union has to do with that. The other thing it has to do with is the fact that in these last twenty-four years of Putinism, 23, um, the image of the goodness of Soviet times has been sort of explicitly uh, underscored. I mean, um, Putin has sort of made a point of um, bringing back the Soviet Union as a as an ultimate um, ideological good. And I think we definitely see that with the conflict in Ukraine. Um, also, like in the beginning, uh, there was um, there was this amazing photo that they. I think even now I sometimes see it on banners in Saint Petersburg, um, but it's an image of an old woman holding a Soviet flag, and this was and, and everything's burning behind her, and it's sort of seen as like, well, this is why we're fighting this war, you know, because this woman is out there holding a Soviet flag, and she's a Ukrainian woman. And what happened was they actually they later found her. Um, what, what journalists later found her. What happened was that when the Russian army invaded, uh, she came out with this flag, possibly thinking that, this way she later described it, thinking that if she showed them the flag, they wouldn't kill her. Kind of like as a, you know, here I am kind of thing. But it, she did have a Soviet flag. This this image was recorded and suddenly it was everywhere as kind of the formal justification of the invasion of Ukraine, which in Russia must be called a special military operation to fight uh, Satanism, um, Nazism, uh, gender ideology, and the last the last reason for the special operation is to bring freedom to Africa. Um, that's the last official official statement. Um, but so so the, she became she became the kind of the poster child, and of course the the fantastic question that nobody nobody asked is why is everything burning behind her? Like who who burned everything? You know. Uh, but yeah, but she's there with a the Soviet flag. Um, uh, you see the Soviet flag on some of the military, some of the Russian military brigades have Soviet flags, interestingly. And, uh, and, and sometimes you get these videos online where these, you know, kind of there's a lot of videos of Russian tourists acting very badly. Um, where they're like they're like in Georgia and people Georgians are like what are you doing here and they're like oh whatever it's the Soviet Union we're all this is my territory <laughs> and like dude no it's not <laughs> um. great well Ksenia um, this is a, a beautifully written ethnography it's accessible yet sophisticated it's really a joy to read um, so thank you very much uh, we've taken up enough of your time but uh, before we go um, what are you working on now well I'm I'm really interested in uh, this sort of putting the ideas of the book in a longer historical optic and and seeing it as a um, tracing theories of social self-management back to the 19th century to Gerzen. Because the thing is that, you know, Russia's had a very interesting and illiberal history of private property 
private private property rights didn't come from bourgeois revolution. Um, they were granted by Catherine the Great and only to some only to the um, aristocratic estate, essentially turning the peasants into private property. Um, and then so the question is, how do you build a modern society where most people lack this basic uh, liberal right to private property? And I mean, you, for it to be a modern society, it has to be self-managing in a sense, because you would, as Mises is totally right, you would go crazy trying to manage everything because people live together as strangers and you can't, I mean, you would need a supercomputer <laughs> to get everybody going where they, has to, where they, they have to go, right? Um, so how do, you, how do you make things sort of managed by themselves? How do you create a spontaneous order, as Hayek put it? Well, the liberal idea from the... From at least at least in, in the in the British tradition from the uh, 18th century has been to create spontaneous order through the markets with the invisible hand, right? Um, in in Russia there is another intellectual tradition that I'm trying to trace which creates spontane- spontaneous order through the collective by going back to sort of the peasant collective and the fact that they can get things done going around the law helping each other out. Um, this is an image that you get with Gertsen. Herzen, I think, in, in, in English, um, with his ideas of Russian socialism, where he says that, you know, we, like, you know, the problem is that the peasants are themselves baptized property, as he calls them. But it's really great how they can get everything done without written laws and regulations and, and rules. And if only we could um, somehow make them not baptized property, but then keep their collectivist institutions intact, um, then we could have a, a truly socialist society which hasn't destroyed the... The, the, the rights of the non-owner, which hasn't crushed them to, 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 you know, to create private property as they have in Europe. In a way, Stalin creates this image that Herzen imagines in a weird way. And in a way, this is also the image of Dugin's like, Russian world. This is kind of an image that Putin's um, state also thrives for, which also has very tenuous private property rights. I mean, officially there is private property, but it's kind of it's not private property in the same in the same way we think about it in the U.S. Definitely, people can um, be stripped of it, um, and definitely it, everything runs still on personal ties. Because if you know you if you don't have people helping you get through the um, system of idiotic rules and regulations, nothing would get done. So I'm kind of curious and about that longer intellectual tradition and, and tracing it and asking whether it can help us understand what's going on in Russia today. Awesome. Well, I look forward to um, reading and, and that project when it uh, comes out. Uh, well, uh, this is Gleaning for Communism, the Soviet Socialist Household in Theory and Practice. Ksenia, thank you very much. Thanks, Robin. Nice talking to you.